I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. As I've mentioned to you before in this series of messages from 1 John, the Apostle is endeavoring to give his readers a genuine assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ. This would be a critical need for John's readers in light of those false teachers who sought to undermine John's desire to assure them of their confirmed relationship to Jesus the Messiah. Notice exactly how John both refutes these false teachers and at the same time encourages his readers in 1 John 3 verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. John gives us four specific confirmations here in 1 John 3, 1-3 regarding how to know whether or not you have a genuine relationship to God and Christ. The first of those four specific confirmations is in the first part of verse 1. And it is this, God's love confirms our sonship. God's love confirms our sonship. Notice again what John says in the first part of verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In studying 1 John 3, 1 this week, I realized that try, I'm sure, as they most assuredly did, the translators of the English Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm using, simply did not capture the essence of what John is saying here. I say that because of this. When John says, See what kind of love the Father, that particular phrase, is really something more like this. See what great a love. Emphasizing the magnanimous nature of God's love. Even the Greek word that's used there to describe the greatness of God's love is so under-emphasized that you don't really see it in that English text. Your version of the Bible, for instance, if you have the NASB or something like that, it might be something like this. See what great a love. See what magnanimous a love the Father has for us. And even in that second phrase of the middle part of verse 1, see what great a love or see what massive a love or magnanimous a love the Father has given to us still even in and of itself doesn't capture what John is really trying to convey because it's not just the love that the Father has given to us it's the love that the Father has lavished upon us that's the essence that's what John is trying to convey Putting it together then, it would be something like this. See what grand, see what great, see what awesome love the Father has lavished, poured into and upon us that we should be called 
children of God. And thus, or so we are, exclamation point. That's it. That's what John is saying. That, that captures it. That's what he's driving toward. And why would he do so? Why would he speak thusly? Well, don't forget the background of the entirety of 1 John. It's this polemical book meant to both refute false teachers and their claims and also to encourage, to, to exhort, to warn the true believers, the genuine Christians about various things and including here about the very idea of the love of God, the magnanimity of God, the great awesome love of God that is so lavished upon us, so poured upon us that we are actually able not just to say but to experience the love of God by a spiritual, filial relationship to God, our Heavenly Father. You and I, as fellow believers, are actually able to say in point of fact that God is our Father and that we are His children. Now, if that doesn't excite you, then it should. Because if you would think for just one moment about who you were outside of Christ, even if you were a young person, or especially if you were an older person, or anywhere along the spectrum of the age of a person, chronologically speaking, where you were outside of Christ, estranged from Him, an enemy of God, you weren't able to say that you were a child of God. You weren't able to say that God was your Father and He was not able to say that you were His Son, His daughter. And if a false teacher were to come along and so delude you and so deceive you and to foist upon you some idea that by following his or her teaching that you would be a part of the in-group with them, that you would have some special secret knowledge, some gnosis, some idea that you had a relationship with God that turned out ultimately to be so very false and so very untrue, wouldn't you, as these believers reading this epistle from John and seeing that they truly know Christ, are able to rejoice and say, I am a son of my Father. You see? It's true. It's a fact. It is that I am a child of God. You see what great a love the Father has lavished upon us that we are able to be called sons and daughters of God. And then this, and so we are. So we are. What an encouragement. What an encouragement. I mean, one of the very confirmations that we are truly one of God's own children is that no matter what you've done, Regardless of how many times you've failed to respond rightly to the Lord and how you have grieved His heart through your disobedience, He nevertheless, with a persevering commitment, loves you with an everlasting love that will never change. That, my friends, can get you through the deepest trial. That can allow you to have the kind of heart of love back to the Father, even in the deepest pain, even with the greatest loss, even with the most profound disappointment. And no disappointment, no greatest loss, no hurt, no trial, no test, 
will ever, ever, ever diminish the perfect love of God for you. That's a great encouragement. What an encouragement. I thought about that this week when one of my daughters came home and said that from school she had heard because she was not able to be in that particular class that the teacher was experiencing some great tribulation by his students. And if you know anything about a teacher-student relationship, even in Christian schools, to say nothing of secular schools for that matter, that there can be great tribulation at times. And apparently there was such a disturbance that the teacher in exasperation simply said, all right, take out a piece of paper and write down the following. What do you like and what do you not like about my class? Now, I'm not sure he really wanted to hear those things. Possibly he did. And maybe that's why he asked what he asked. But sometimes when you ask what you ask for, you receive. And apparently what he received was some of the most discouraging things he's ever heard. Because apparently several of these students spoke about almost in the main what they did not like, which of course is very, the very evidence of immaturity. Because if you thought about things for a while, no matter how bad it gets and no matter how bad things seem to be, you can always find something good. You can always find something to encourage others with. And yes, the opposite is always true, that if in fact you are mainly or mostly negative in your life and what you see are negative things, no matter how positive things are, it's like the man who said of his discouraged and discouraging friend, he always finds in every luscious meadow a manure pile. And apparently what that teacher then gathered up from those pieces of paper and after he read them, asked to be excused from the class and went and wept. And when my daughter heard of that experience, came back to class the next day and wrote out her own letter, totally unprovoked by me or her mother, wrote him an eight and a half by 11 page of that which she so very much appreciated because he is one of her favorites. And she said he excused himself during a break and she saw him in the library reading that very piece of paper and he folded it, put it down and wept again. And then returned and said, thank you so very much. You don't know how that encourages me. Guess what should encourage you all the more? That God the Father loves you. And no matter how discouraging you are to Him, and no matter how many times in your thoughts or your actions you speak of Him in ways that do not rightly represent Him, and your disappointment with Him, and His will, and His purposes, and sometimes even as those who've received the grace of God, we trample upon that grace by our presumption and our sin, it will nevertheless not ever, not once, deter him from expressing and persevering in his love for you and for me. Do you see how great a love the Father has for us? That no matter what we do to disappoint our Father, he will nevertheless manifest his great love for us and so call us his dear children. And so we are. And so we are. Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? That's, that's probably one of the greatest questions that human beings ask. Do, do, I, do I believe that God loves me? Do I know of His love? Well, if you're a genuine child of God, you can be assured of the love of God because the Word of God says it right here. 
1 John 3, 1. See what magnanimous love the Father has lavished upon us to make you His child. And so you are. So you are. By the way, you see the little word that begins this verse? See? Don't miss that. That's a divine command. That's a command. See, grasp, look, behold. Uh, don't just, don't just assume, don't just presume by way of a divine command. Spend some time thinking about this. Surveying your life. Looking at who God is. And what he's commanding you to do, and what John says God is commanding you to do by way of his exhortation is to see, to grasp, to look upon, to behold the grand love, the magnificent love, the magnanimous love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. True believer, you should never, ever doubt the love God has for us. See it. Behold it. Grasp its depth and its height and its width and its breadth. No wonder Paul could write the Ephesians this truth in Ephesians three seventeen to 19. Listen to it. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If Paul wrote the Ephesians that and if I'm exhorting you with that, then how could you and I ever doubt the love of Jesus Christ which surpasses knowledge, Paul says. The, the heart of faith, seeing that it is rooted and grounded in this love so that we would have the strength to comprehend its breadth and its length and its height and its depth. Does that not remind you of Paul in Romans 8? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the rhetorical answer? No, none of that. None of that as ghastly as it is, as hideous as it is, will never be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Even those for whom it was written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Even if our life is taken away from us, even if we're... We're slaughtered like sheep, and even if we are being killed, all of us, by persecution, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why should we ever doubt? Why should we ever doubt in the face of God's Word? Ephesians 3, Romans 8, 1 John 3, 1. How is it that we as true believers should ever doubt the love of God? And as believers, why aren't we proactively seeing, grasping, thinking through the divine dimensions of the love of God in Christ? I challenge you, the next time you're going through a deep trial, pain, injury, loss, the sense of forsakenness, think, grasp, see the love of God. Secondly, there's another confirmation here. The world's estrangement from us confirms our relationship to Christ. Now that would make sense, wouldn't it? That would make perfect sense to me. If you are to see and to grasp and to behold 
the very love that the Father has lavished upon us as a divine confirmation that we are the children of God. And if that's true, then guess what is also true? Its opposite is that if the world hates you, then that also confirms that you are children of God. Makes perfect sense. Makes absolutely perfect sense. If God loves you, the world will not. But even in the world's disdain and hostility and anger, it from the backdoor sense also confirms that you have a relationship to Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful confirmation. You say, well, that doesn't sound wonderful. I mean, I love the love part. Give me the love, man. I love that part. Where's the love? It's there. The Father loves you. The Bible says it. Believe it. See it. Grasp it. Behold it. It's a magnanimous love. It's a grand love. But there's also love's opposite. That's hate. But even in the hate, that's good. Because it shows you that you have a relationship even by way of an estrangement from a hostile, evil, wicked world that you're not like them. And therefore, it also confirms, proves that you have a relationship to Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Look at the latter part of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us, filial relationship, spiritual dynamic, is that it did not know Him. Do you realize you can be assured of your salvation by the, wor- the way the world expresses its hatred toward you? That's right. In other words, you will have confirmation that you're a Christian by both the love of God and its complete opposite, the hatred of the world. That's what Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus said to His very own disciples in John 5. Verses 37 to 43. Listen to this. The Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. He told those Jews of His own day. His form you have never seen and you do not have His word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. What an indictment. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. You're hostile to me. You don't believe in me. You don't believe me. You don't believe that I came from the Father. You have no relationship to me. The love of the Father is not in you. You know that you're a Christian because of the way the world treats you. We have no relationship with each other. There's no filial dynamic. There's no spiritual relationship, core, union, commonality. And we will be hated by the world because they don't believe that Jesus is the proclaimed Messiah of the world. Why be shocked? Why, why be shocked that the world hates you? Don't be, don't be confused. Don't be sad. See it as a confirmation. See it as an assurance of your salvation. Now, if you're flirting with the world... That's why John says in 1 John 2, 15-17, Don't love the world, nor the things of the world. For the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, or the pride in possessions, they're not from the Father, but they're from the world. But if you have a love from the Father, if the Father loves you, then you're going to love Him, and you're going to love what He loves, and you love Christ, and you love what He loves. And the very opposite of that is to hate what they hate, and you hate the world, and you don't want to be a part of the world, and you don't want to do the things of the world. And if you don't want to do the things of the world, then the world will hate you because you are standing against their things. You see? James said, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And hostility toward God the Father is hostility toward Christ the Son. That's the way it's going to be. 
It's always been true, will forever be true. And even if that's true, and sometimes it's a harsh reality, the way you and I are going to be treated, it's a harsh reality, there is a silver lining. Listen to what Jesus said to his own disciples just after he had said some of those other things I quoted. Listen to what he said in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. John has taken a page right out of his own gospel when he says what he says here in 1 John 3, right? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why should anybody be shocked at the hostility of the world toward Christians? Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. By the way, have you ever noticed that? Like on one of these television programs when you have these panel of professing Christians, religious leaders, and they're all talking about generically the person of God. And then somebody may even say, God the Father. And still there's no real hostility. There might even be some kind of generic although ill-defined agreement. But then, as soon as one of these professing religious leaders, maybe even a bona fide evangelical Christian pastor, teacher, theologian says, Jesus the Son or Jesus as God, guess when the hostility arises? Right there, right there. And even sometimes from some of these same religious leaders... Well, now, now wait a minute now. We don't want to go down that road. What did Jesus say? Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Here it is. Here's the principle. You will be unknown, unknown in the relational sense. You will be unknown and even hated by the world if you are known and loved by Christ. Guilt edge guarantee. I'll say it again. You will be unknown and even hated by the world if you are known that is loved by Christ. But, my dear friends, take great comfort. Because that's actually a confirmation of your salvation. Even as Jesus spoke those words that I just quoted to you in John 15, listen to what He says. Precious words. John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. In other words, the world's going to rejoice in your pain, in your sorrow, in your persecution, in your death. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then listen to the analogy that he uses. Perfect. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And I've seen eight of those very sorrowful hours. But, and this is true, and I've seen it eight times... But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And I confess, even though I haven't had the personal empathetic experience of birthing a baby, I do not nevertheless understand how both things could be true at the same time. Anguish, pain, labor. And I've seen it and I've seen it on the face And yet, when that baby is there, I've seen all of that wiped away. And I say, I do not understand that. And sometimes it happens even within 30 seconds. I see the joy even as the pain subsides. It's amazing. In that day, Jesus said, 
You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Yes, we've got pain right now. Yes, there'll be hostility. There may even be more. It may even increase in intensity. But he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will will receive that your joy may be full. The Father himself loves you. There it is again. It's not just Ephesians 3, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's not just Romans 8, that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. It's not just 1 John 3, 1. See what magnanimous love the Father has lavished upon us. It's also in John 16, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, it's going to be hostile. Yes, they're going to be angry. Yes, there will be disputes. Yes, there will be false rumors. Yes, all of those and so much more will be true. But even in their hatred of you, it's a confirmation of the love of God and the assurance that you know Christ. Didn't John himself say it in 1 John 5? Listen to what he says. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ? You believe that Jesus is the Christ? Then you love the Jesus who is the Christ. And therefore you love the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you love them, you will be hated by the world. And yet that's the very assurance, confirmation of your love. And you know, that would be a perfect answer to false teachers. Perfect answer. They're telling you to join them. They're telling you to believe what they believe. And with that belief, it's a denial of Jesus as the Christ. And so you deny what they believe and you affirm what you know to be true. And therefore you reject them and their doctrine. And in the very rejection, if there's an uncertainty of the moment... There's a certainty of the lifetime because the Father loves you. And if you love Jesus Christ, you'll be hated by the world and you'll be hated by those very false teachers who want you to disbelieve what you believe. Don't do it. If you do that, you will be unsure of whether or not you know and experience the love of God. You want to talk about a lack of assurance? You want to talk about not having the certainty of your salvation? Then start messing with Jesus who is the Christ. Start disbelieving that. Start denying that. Start listening to the false teachers. That's where uncertainty comes, my friends. That's where a lack of assurance is bound. That's why where you don't know you're going is grounded Because you don't know if Jesus is the Christ. You're starting to waver. And maybe some of these very readers were wavering. They didn't know. Is it true? Is Jesus the Christ? Can I know it with certainty? And when you say yes by faith. My victory in overcoming the world. Is believing that Jesus is the Christ. And if you believe that. You experience the love of Christ. And if you experience the love of Christ. You will experience the love of the Father. And that gives you the very assurance and grounding. That you know Christ. And even as the world hates you. It's even further confirmation. Thirdly. And this is just. This is just. Beyond giddiness for me. Number three, Jesus' second coming confirms our future transformation. Look at verse two. Beloved, beloved, we are God's children now. Oh, I love that. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, wait a minute, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. What a confirmation. What a confirmation. 
John says you can be confirmed in your relationship to Jesus Christ Himself because as God's children right now, even though you don't know yet what you will appear to be, you will be ultimately guilt edge, guarantee, command. You can, you can mark it down right now. Jesus has commanded the entire creation to work toward your ultimate transformation to prove that you are in fact fully and completely mature a child of God. Folks, don't doubt for one moment the love of God. Don't doubt for one moment that if you have that love for God, you'll have a hatred of the world. And don't doubt for one moment that even though you're God's child now in some level of spiritual infancy and immaturity, you will be fully and completely transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. You believe sometimes on Monday morning, even if you're pumped up on Sunday morning, that it's going to be another lousy week. You ever thought that? You wake up on Monday morning, and even if you thought you were encouraged, or maybe even if the sermon really wasn't that much of a wow factor for you, that no matter how blasé and lousy Monday morning will be, one day there won't be any more Monday mornings. And you want to talk about the opposite of blasé. It's just nothing other than being like Jesus Christ. You say, in what sense like Jesus Christ? Well, not perfect in the sense that He is a divine being, but like Him in this sense, holy. Holy like Christ. That's what He's saying. Transformed. Your whole life transformed. Every bad attitude and every idea that is inconsistent with the perfect conformity of who Jesus Christ is and what He taught will vanish away when you and I are transformed into His very likeness. Wow. And this is, this is the consistent New Testament teaching regarding the Christian life. Now, I know it's a tension. As Dr. Zimmick taught you last Sunday night, it's a tension. There's no question about it. There's a balance beam. There's a way to, to see the tension for the way it really is, even if there are times when you don't want it to be the way it really is. It is nevertheless that way, and it's like this, and I've told you this before. It's the already and the not yet. It's the here and the then. It's the now and the away. And the now is... Even if you sometimes scarcely can see it in your own heart, your own life, you're God's child. Take comfort in that. You're God's child. You're a believer. You know Christ. The already is what He says. You're, you're a child of God. We're the church. That's what He says. We are God's children now, in the here and now. And even admits what we will be has not yet appeared. Even John, the apostle, is saying, I don't know what exactly that's going to look like. Refreshing, even under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's not God. He doesn't know. Ultimately, he's saying, even that will be revealed to us. That will appear at some time. And when it does, here's the glorious reality. Even though you might not see it in your own Christian life, even though you might be trudging along, even though you might think there's some blasé Mondays, we know, we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's the authoritative word of God telling you the truth. Believe it. Affirm it. It's going to happen. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day. Boy. Why? Why or how shall we be like Him? Notice the last part of that verse too. Because we shall see Him as He is. Somehow, I can't explain it, neither can John. Somehow, there's going to be some kind of divine transformation so that you and I are going to look and act in a holy, perfect manner just like Jesus the Christ. 
Now, that's something to shout out about, and I didn't hear a single word. I'm going to give you credit. It was probably in your heart. Can, can you imagine? I mean, think of it this way. I read somewhere some time this week that some person in a faraway place was contemplating this very verse And it said, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And they said something like this, glory of glories. I would be content with getting to glory and just kneeling at his feet and wiping them in worship and praise for all eternity. I would be content with just praising Him forever and just being so, in fact, gloriously taken with the reality that I'm in heaven and that I'm not in hell, and yet you're telling me that I will actually not just sit at His feet, not just worship and kiss Him forever, but that I shall be like Him? I can't fathom that. It's not just that He rewards us for good deeds. It's not just that He transforms our character in the here and now so that we're children of God, however immature and however an infant spiritually we may be. And it's not just even in glory that we're going to sit at His feet and praise Him and sing hallelujahs to Him. The Bible says we shall be like Him. That is incomprehensible. And you know what makes it so incomprehensible? Sometimes, myself, most notably included, the lousy way we choose to live our Christian lives. The lousy obedience, the half-hearted commitment, the lack of desire doesn't really sound much when we preview our life that we shall be like Him. But we are God's children right now. That's the already. And there's the not yet. And we shall be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. Ephesians 4. Colossians 3. Romans 8.29. 1 Corinthians 15.49. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Philippians 1.21. All of those... Affirming John's theology of the Christian life, it's the now and the not yet. It's the already and that which will happen, and that which will happen is yours and my future transformation. We will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. How is He? Pure, holy, righteous, undefiled by sinners. You and I will be one day undefiled by sinners. And they will be undefiled by us. And we'll be holy and perfect and righteous because we'll see Him as He is. Future transformation. That confirms that we're on the road, that we're on the way. You can grab that tape at the finish line. You've won. Number four. Here's another Fourth and final confirmation. The blessed hope of Christ's return confirms even our present purification. Folks, not just future transformation, but present purification. I'm so glad he added that. Because wouldn't it be true that somebody might have the tendency, I know I would... To say, well, if it's going to happen to me in glory, if I'm going to be, in a future sense, transformed by the person of Christ to look like the person of Christ, then I'll just wait for that day to come. Sit back. Allow it to happen. Do whatever needs to be done, except if it doesn't hurt or isn't painful or isn't decisive or committed. Because that means work. And I'm not sure about work. So John says, no, no, no. There is work. And it's your responsibility. And you are commanded. Notice what he says in verse 3. And everyone, everyone who thus hopes in him, I take that to be Christ, purifies himself. I take that to be the believer as he, Christ, is pure. What hope is John referring to here? 
It's none other than the hope which we should define as the confident expectation of Christ's return to the earth. Every Christian who thus hopes, longs, has faith in order to affirm the certainty of Jesus' return to this earth will, John says, purify himself from any habits or patterns of sinfulness. It's not just sitting back. It's not just waiting for some hope-for return of Christ so that in the future I'll be transformed. I'm actively involved, decisively, in a committed fashion, working diligently to purify myself in the power of the Spirit. By the way, do you remember how chapter 2 of 1 John ended? Just a couple of verses right before our text. Look at verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, that's His coming, that's His future glory, that's His return to the earth, we may have, what? Confidence and not shrink from Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, if you know that He's coming, and if you know that He's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. If you don't want to practice righteousness, then how do you know that you are born of Him? If you know that He's coming... And you don't do anything about it. You don't purify yourself because He is pure. Then how do you have any confidence that you will not shrink in shame from Him at His coming? Are you singing or are you shrinking? Only you can answer that. I mean, just bookended. And the verses that I just read to you and the verses that follow the text that we're preaching this morning, listen to the verses that follow, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. If you want to see exactly what John is referring to when he says, you purify yourself because Christ is pure, here it is. Everyone who makes a practice, verse 4, of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Here are these false teachers. They're trying to teach you a different way of purification. But He says, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He, Christ, is righteous. Here's our text. We want to purify ourselves because He is pure. Here's the next text. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. He is pure and He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's a practical outworking of what he means to purify yourself because he is pure. Your doctrine and your life. That's why the Christian doesn't merely look forward to his future transformation, but will also, because of the present work of God in his heart and because of the confident expectation of his Lord's return, purify himself as Christ himself is pure. I mean, you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It's, it's a cleansing. 1 Timothy 5, 22, be pure. James 4, 8. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 1 Peter 1, 22. Purify, purify, purify. That will be your desire. You won't want to make a practice of sinning. You want to be righteous. You want to practice righteousness because He is righteous. You want to purify yourself because He is pure. Well, that's a wonderful confirmation. Are you experiencing purity? 
It's the confirmation that you are purifying yourself because He is pure. It's a great confirmation. Now, as we close this morning, let me ask you some questions. I want you to bow your head with me. Let me ask you this morning as we seek to segue, I think, beautifully into the examination of the Lord's Supper with these questions. Here's the first one. Do these four confirmations of First John 3, 1 to 3 resonate with you? Do you as a professing Christian really possess a spiritual, filial relationship with God the Father? Do you experience love for and from the world? Or do you experience hostility from it? Are you caught in the glorious tension of the Christian life where you are already but not yet? It's a glorious tension. However difficult and Balancing it is. Are you there? Are you looking so forward to your future transformation to be like Him because you will see Him as He is? Are you presently purifying yourself as Christ Himself is pure? Oh, if you can answer those questions. Yes to these questions of confirmation. Then I would invite you, command you to seek, grasp, see the lavished love of God which has been placed in and upon you. Father, may these confirmations continue to be pondered, thought through, contemplated as wonderful assurances that we have a deep and abiding intimacy as children of God with you and your lavished love. If indeed that is your experience, whether you're a member of the Bible Church of Little Rock or not, we invite you now to experience with us us the Lord's table. Lord, may it be pleasing to you as we emblematically celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.